open episode 194 of Monster Kid Radio with a little Power Surf. Specifically, the Power Surf Orchestra is the name of the album from the band The Mullet Monster Mafia. This song is Sinister People's Secrets. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, go check them out over at themulletmonstermafia.bandcamp.com. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you after you're done listening to this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Welcome to the show. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'm excited because we're going to talk about a John Agar film. And no, I'm not going to drop in the dead alibi right here like I did in the last episode. Instead, I just want to get into the movie Zontar, The Thing from Venus, from director Larry Buchanan, 1966. John Agar, what more do you need to know? How about that Alan Trump is on the show to talk about this movie? Now, Alan is somebody that I met at last year's HP Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. We did an interview together, chatted about Lovecraft, collecting movie posters, drive-in grindhouse, his background, that sort of thing. We had him back on the show on Tuesday to talk about Larry Buchanan. And in this episode, number 194, we're going to talk about Buchanan's film Zontar, The Thing from Venus. It is a remake And I don't want to say much more because, well, we're going to talk about it with Alan. Why don't we go ahead and get into that right after this? The sound you hear is dripping blood. This is the start of Black Sunday. Black Sunday comes but once every hundred years. On that day, the undead demons of hell rise to unleash an orgy of evil on the world. From Nikolaj Gogol's great classic, American International Pictures presents Black Sunday, the most frightening motion picture you have ever seen. She was murdered 500 years ago. There in the barren waste that was her cemetery, they nailed the mask of Satan to her face. Not since Dracula stalked the earth has there been such an unspeakable day and night as Black Sunday. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? (laughs) People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. (laughs) Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something from archive.org and review and discuss it. (laughs) That sure is nice of us. Sure. Why don't you click over to orphan-entertainment.jonja.net and remind yourself a little more about the show. Will do. So let's see. That's orphan-entertainment.jonja.net. Hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie sometime? Mm-hmm. We'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Everybody running. It's the end of everything. What do you mean? I'm not arguing theory, General. I'm here to ask you, to beg you, to save your own world. It is the most fascinating mastermind man can conceive. A monster that can control all sources of the Earth's power. Able to pull man-made spaceships from their orbits. Making of those it chooses slaves. Of this woman, a willing handmaiden. Of the chief of police, a cold-blooded killer. Well, I've known you for five years. You just killed a man in cold blood. Why? I'll have to place you under protective custody. Peter Graves, the scientist who fought it. Beverly Garland, who believed her love stronger than it. Lee Van Cleef, whose brilliant mind was captured by it. Ready to stop loving me? I'll need you even when no emotion exists. For a few dollars, you can you can hire a woman who'll fit all your fetishes. 
to match your requirements perfectly. Then if you ever get tired of it, you can always run down to the employment agency for another. You'll know terror to freeze your blood. You'll feel the heart-stopping strength of the most fearful monster ever known. You think you're going to make a slave of the world? I'll see you in hell first. It conquered the world. Just like in Conquered the World, you don't really see the monster until it... Mm-hmm. You see a little bit of it when it crash lands the satellite into the cave. Just a little bit, and then later on you see bits and pieces as it attacks Beverly Garland. Mm-hmm. And then it comes out. I think that translated pretty well to this remake, that they don't yeah. really exploit the image of the monster until the end when you really get to see it. So. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit more about the movie itself? Zontar, the sure. from Venus. It was a TV movie, 1966. Yep. And as we said, it's a remake of It Conquered the World, which was something that AIP TV was doing, was remaking some of their back catalog. Uh-huh. And, and even using some of the elements from the back catalog in the films. Uh, the music in this movie, in Zontar, is pretty much the music from It Conquered the World and a few other pieces of library music AIP had by Ronald Stein. So I picked up on that pretty quick. Now, you're a big film soundtrack collector. Yeah. Do you have the uh, soundtrack for Invasion of the Saucerman and It Conquered the World? Yes, I believe so. Okay. There's, if you look in the booklet for that, yeah. that comes with it, they talk about how AIP kind of appropriated a lot of this Ronald Stein music, you know, for right. the uh, Larry Buchanan films. And there's a little, uh, a little quote, I think, in the book from, I, I think this was from Stein's wife. He goes, just, Ronnie was watching some awful thing on television sometime in the 1960s, recalled his widow, Harleen Stein. And suddenly, there's his music. He was a little put out because he hadn't been paid for the use oh, of it. Oh, no. Sam Arkoff apologized, and they worked it out with Sam ceding a lot of the music rights back to Ronnie. So, <laughs> so there you go. Oh, man. I mean, there's so much stuff like that that went on. Sure. I've always wondered about, and again, this, this varies right off the test. I always wondered if you, in the remake that they did of Invasion of the Saucer Men, they have a clip, they have the flying saucer from Invaders from Mars film as the original spacecraft. How the hell did they do that without getting sued? You know, I don't think I've ever noticed that. Yeah, it is. Huh. So I don't know if they clipped it out of maybe a trailer or something and said, well, it's fair use. But mm-hmm. I don't. I really don't know. Anyway, back to back to Zontar. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No. Clear. No. That's huh. Interesting. Well, I wouldn't put it past AIP to do something like that. Nope. <laughs> nope. You know, they were about making money and saving money in the process. So mm-hmm. uh, American mm-hmm. International, you know, they're near and dear to our heart here on Monster Kid Radio. They're responsible for some of my favorite films. Period. I want him to know and feel pain. What I create, I must control. Go on, activate this body. With Bissell, demonic as Professor Frankenstein, who creates out of human parts the most terrifying creature to walk the earth today. Please! I know they're going to catch me, but don't let anyone see me like that! Please, Doctor, help me! Michael Landon in a powerful performance as the boy possessed. Yvonne Lyon, appealing as the girl who loves him. Whit Bissell, unforgettable as the scientist maddened by the mystery of the werewolf. And Tony Marshall, a tough, friendly enemy. He was killed by, by a werewolf. Panic penetrates every home when this strange, unknown killer hits town. Taking hold of the teenage crowd. Coloring their practical jokes with hysterical humor that'll make you fall flat on your face. With horror, nothing you've ever seen has such blood-chilling savagery. Nothing you've ever conceived packs such a spine-tingling jolt. This high school boy, a teenage werewolf. Teenage Werewolf, Teenage Frankenstein specifically. I love those two movies and wish they had a proper DVD release. Uh, These films are fantastic and are a big part of the reason why I'm a monster kid. When I found those, I just was in love with them. Well, then they got the TV deal. They needed to, like you said, 
generate some income, make some movies, got Larry Buchanan in, they remade They Conquered the World as Zontar the Thing from Venus, starring a, I believe, 45-year-old John Agar. Hmm? The man. That's right. <laughs> One of our patron saints here at Monster Kid Radio. And, and well-deserved. Yes, yes. Now, he, he plays the lead. He plays the, uh, the Peter Graves character, doesn't he? He does, definitely. Definitely. Dr. Taylor. He's kind of a, a very rational person as opposed to where it is in, the, for instance, um, the brain from Planet Eros, where he's completely off his, off his uh, rocker after being possessed by the alien gore. Mm-hmm. I like John Agar as the, we were talking off mic before we started recording, the man of action. I, I like him as the hero doing stuff. Yeah, I mean, I just love, well, I love John Agar movies, period. But in a movie like this, he seems to be very aggressively assertive and not necessarily in a, in a bad way, but I just love that he's the one that's figuring it out. He's the one that takes his gun to his best friend's house. And it's like, you know, I killed my wife. Now I'm going to kill you. You know, I mean, he's the one that's going <laughs> to, he thinks he's going to get it done. And I, I just love his performance in this. I do too. And like I said, I mean, of the Buchanan films, this is probably the most action packed because as I mentioned, he's, he's doing everything from jumping over security fences to get into the satellite facility. He's, mm-hmm. uh, when Zontar shuts down all the power all throughout town and maybe the world, he has to resort to riding a bike. You know, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he is shooting people. He's, you know, lots, there's lots of activity in this as opposed to some of the other Buchanan films, which tend to be a lot more sedentary mm-hmm. and kind of adds to some of the boredom at times. But no, he's in fine form here. I agree. And he's a little older than... You know, we've seen him before. You know, obviously, people know him from the Universal films, Revenge of the Creature, Tarantula, you know, things like that, when he's really this kind of virile kind of scientist action hero type. But he still got it oh, in yeah, Zontar. You know, in fact, the, the extra age, and he aged pretty well, the extra age kind of gives him even more authority in the situation, I feel like. So you'd be hard-pressed to find a bad John Agar film, I feel like. Not, not no. that that's a challenge to anybody, but I think you'd be hard-pressed no. to find a... Yeah, and, and we talked about it a little bit before. We talked about that movie. I, I think it's called uh, another Buchanan film, Hell Raiders. Yes, yes. Which has him as a general, and it's a World War II picture, you know, mm-hmm. different from its, its original. It's not based on any AIP stuff. I think it's kind of a lost film. If somebody has it, I don't think they've made enough money redistributing Buchanan films on DVD or things like that to accommodate the cost of putting it out there. Although you said that you'd looked on Amazon Prime and said it, maybe it is out there. Yeah, there, there looks like there's a copy of it available on Amazon Streaming, and I, I don't know if you need to be a Prime member to... I mean, you don't get it for free, so you might be... Anybody can get it, I think, for like $3 to stream it. I, I think it's unfortunate, and we, we are sidelining a little bit, but I, I want to talk about it anyway. My show, I'll do what I want. Um, <laughs> <Your> show? <laughs> I do think it's unfortunate that there are all these great public domain films, and then there are these movies that came out around the same time a lot of these public domain films that aren't in the public domain, and because they're not in the public domain, they're not readily available. And Obviously, I want the people who own the movies to get some money. You know, they they need to be compensated for shepherding and you know maintaining these films and that sort of thing. But I do feel like there are a lot of movies out there in this weird gape area. I almost said gray market because that's how you can find them a lot of times. Mm, but this weird gray area where they're just not available. They're not public domain, but they're you know they're not as well known as some of the. I, I just I feel like. We're kind of at in the day and age of instant streaming and downloading movies through Netflix and all these other immediate ways to watch film. There's so much out there that you just can't get. Well, and the thing that makes me sad is, for instance, I don't think you can, can you legitimately get, for instance, something like just classic stuff like Invasion of the Saucer Men or It Conquered the World on a legitimate DVD or streaming release now? I know some of the AIP stuff is not available. I mentioned Teenage yeah. Frankenstein and Werewolf. And uh, the widow of, I believe, is it Arkoff who has it? The widow of one of them owns those and has yes. not signed off on a DVD release. They got a VHS release. But yep. in terms of DVD, they were never officially released. And she's holding out for more money. And, you know, good for her. If she owns the product, why not? If she's, you know, maintaining these films and shepherding the films, that's great. But I wish there was a way to make these movies available while compensating the, the owners of the films. And, and I agree with that. And, and I would also say that for her, this may be, as time goes by, this is a losing proposition. Because yeah. if you wait too long, the people who grew up with this stuff, your major target audience is getting older. And, 
I mean, they're the ones who really, who really carry these films close to the heart. And mm-hmm. and I think that there are plenty of people like yourself and and the new generation who can find merit with the old things, but. It's the ones who, I grew up with this, I'd like to see this, and once those people start dropping away, you're going to be losing a lot of your potential audience for these things. I, I agree. I agree. The novelty of having Michael Landon in a werewolf film, I think, is lost on the modern audience. So, you know, <laughs> you might have missed the Highway to Heaven and stuff like that. That's true. That's true. Well, they, they cut that into an episode of Highway to Heaven at one point. Oh, that's he, right. He was yeah, watching it on TV. Right. Yeah. I do remember that. My, my science teacher in junior high school showed that to us for Halloween. <laughs> Why? I have no the, idea. But The Highway to Heaven episode? Or, yes. Or the... He brought in a VHS of it. And... <laughs> well, it had monsters in it. I guess you, know, you could get away with that. I have no idea why. <laughs> Anyway, I, I, yeah. I, somebody, somebody um, that I know here in St. Louis, his uh, his wife showed the green slime to their second grade class. Oh wow! I don't I don't know why, but they loved it. They they thought it was fantastic. The green slime are here. Well, now you've got that theme song running through my head. Thank you very much, Alan. <laughs> That's what I needed on a Sunday morning. There uh, you go. <laughs> anyway, Zontar. Back to Zontar. Yes. Back to Zantar and the glory that is John Agar. The downside to having somebody like John Agar in this movie is that the rest of the cast cannot help but pale in comparison. I think that's very fair. Yeah. I think it's a very fair thing to say. You have an accomplished actor, you know, and uh, the one person in here, in, in all of these, I think Anthony Houston, Eric Tuchada third, I think that might be his real name, who plays Keith Ritchie, Zantar's dupe on Earth. Mm-hmm. Some people say that he may be better in this role than Lee Van Cleef in the original one. Really? Because, because they said that he comes across as more nerdy, more eccentric and stuff. And people say, I can't really see Lee Van Cleef being dominated by anything, even a superpowered alien from outer space, you know, especially after he was in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and Escape from New York and all these other things. But uh, True. And, and I also like there's an actor that shows up a lot in these things called Neil Fletcher. He plays General Matt Young. Oh. <laughs> and he's kind of, he's kind of uh, Larry Buchanan's Morris Ankrum. He's always playing a general or a businessman and stuff, but he's always kind of a stuffy, funny guy. I like him, but and I don't know if you want to get into it or not, but you've got like Pat Delaney, who I think is good, but I don't think she's as good as uh, Beverly Garland. Beverly Garden has fire, and she's a spitfire and mm-hmm. does all this. And Pat Delaney is nice and pretty, and she's a very loving and devoted wife. And But everything, but mostly the whole time, she's on the verge of tears. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's quite as interesting. She's on the verge of tears. She, she has a habit of walking into a scene and making a lot of declarations and then kind of walking out of the scene. There's just yep. not a lot to hold on to. But then compared to Beverly Garland, how can you? No, uh-uh. but she's amazing. So she, yeah, she is amazing. Just about everything she did. Mm-hmm. They've trimmed down her dialogue a little bit in this. She has this very strange comment about, of course, Zantar wants to come in, and he they want to work to remove human emotions so that the world will be a safer, better place. There'll be less wars, less destruction, stuff like that. But that includes, of course, love. And Zantar's earthly ally says, "You know, he says, I'll love you, I'll care, I'll need you, even when there is no love or no emotion." And she makes some sort of speech in the original Conquered the World about, he says, "Let's face it, dear. He says, at any time you can go down to this place and for a few dollars hire a woman who fulfill all of your fetishes. He says, and then if you get tired of her, you can return her to the place and get a new one." And it's like, wow. Yeah. For the 50s, you know, <laughs> that's not in Zontar. Zontar is more family friendly. <laughs> yeah, Zontar is more for uh, let the kids watch around TV and, yeah, <laughs> a little, little, little less, uh, I don't know, racy, I suppose. Yeah, there are little little clips and little phrases and things like that that turn up in, in the, the original. That's, well, that's, at one point, Lee Van Cleef in the original says, yeah, we're all in talking about explaining why you shouldn't have the satellite up there because you're going to disturb Zontar and the rest of the intergalactic concordance. He says, we're all in a state of high hilarity now, and we'll all be in a state of high mortality soon if we don't do something. <laughs> well, I don't know how well that works, but <laughs> well, maybe it's good they took that one out. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's hard to watch this movie and not compare it to A Conquer the World because there's so much about A Conquer the World that's just amazing. Yep. But, but, yeah, you know... 
Lee Van Cleef, you know him for the Westerns, you know him for Escape from New York, and I just, I can't see him being dominated by, <laughs> you know, a, a, a musical tone he picks up on a radio in his closet. Uh-huh. I, I just, I don't see it. So maybe that does make sense. You're right, that, that you know, this Keith, uh, Richie and Zontar is a little bit more dominatable, if that's even a word. Yep, yes, yes, so. I agree. You know, what I found really interesting about Zontar versus A Conquer the World is Zontar doesn't sugarcoat it. They throw the communism word out. And I thought that they was... Did. I was amazed by that. Yeah. We're in the midst of a communist uprising. There's no hemming and hawing about who the menaces that we're facing. Yeah, I was pretty amazed by that, too. I, I had forgotten about that, actually. But when I, went, when I watched it last night, it's been years since I had seen it. And the, the general comes in and tells everybody in the in the lab, we're on lockdown, communist attack. Like, wow, that was just on the tip of your tongue, man. You were waiting for this to happen? And, you know, mm-hmm. it is the 60s, so, you know, late 60s, 66. So I'm sure that was something that was on everybody's mind, or at least in the pop culture. Oh, yeah, and, of course, in the original, too, just mm-hmm. with with that. And it's also amazing just how much, and I don't know the time sequence on this or not, but just how much little features of Invasion of the Body Snatchers where yeah. aliens come in to establish a you know, a more orderly society without emotion and invaders from Mars where you get the little control devices in the back of the neck show up in this film. I'm glad that a lot of those things did seem to kind of influence this film as well. I mean, obviously it's a remake, but there are other, not all the sci-fi monster movies up until this point have kind of found a way to influence, you know, the future films. And, and some of these things do kind of creep in. Invasion from the Body Snatchers being an obvious, you know, thematic influence on some of these things. So... I did appreciate yeah, definitely that. tones at the time, and mm-hmm. and even just one of the greatest of all time, uh, the day the Earth stood still. Yes, it, it steals kind of well it appropriates the idea of stopping all motion and paralyzing yeah. the world like that. And I was amazed. I saw a, a reissue of Day the Earth Stood Still when I was in college, and Klaatu and the aliens have handed over control basically of themselves to Gore and his robots. Because as they say something like, if we go wrong, the danger of their retaliation is greater than you would ever want to consider if we, you know, if we mess up. A person in front of me says, you know, that's really kind of a fascist attitude to take, you know, handing over your freedom. <laughs> True. And, I, and at first I was, how dare you, you know, mock this cinematic classic? But yeah, he's got a, got a point there, you yeah. know, but... Mm-hmm. You know, and it's kind of like maybe our, us putting our faith in, okay, our nuclear arsenal. We, well, it's deadly, evil, but we got to put up with it, you know. True, and I think well, a lot of this... Fun, I'm sorry, this is a fun movie. We shouldn't be talking about it. Yeah. So on that unpleasant note, no. No, I think you're right that, especially with some of the genre cinema, because, you know, when you think sci-fi movies today, you think the big flashbang, spaceships fighting each other in space, that sort of thing. It's hard to see some of these messages that may or may not be there. Whereas you mm-hmm. look at some of these genre films, especially something like... You know, Zontar, where they throw communism out there, or they conquer the world, or invasion of the body snatchers. It's interesting to kind of, again, it goes back to that looking back at these older films and seeing beneath the surface what was on everybody's mind at the time. And, and maybe I'm blind to it now because I'm actually in the era that the movies started coming out now, and I don't see it as much, but I, I do think it's interesting. I do very much, too. And something as simple as I do remember... When I was young, I was born in 58, so a little bit younger that can fully appreciate the impact that Sputnik had Mm. when that was launched. And, of course, it was the Soviets who launched it first, not us. But at the time, I remember having a science book, and it had all these pictures of these great satellites we were shooting up there, like Telstar and and, uh, Voyager, Voyager from Viger, whatever. It didn't work out so good for Viger, but uh, (laughs) uh, all these things. And they all had names and stuff, And but... I think that's why you see, for instance, even in something like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, they don't even call it a spaceship. They call it a satellite. That's right, yeah. You know, and I think there was a lot of that consciousness at the time. God knows what we've got up there now, but uh, but at the time, I think that, that also caught the public fancy. Sure, sure. Man, we're getting deep here, huh? Zontar, yeah. fun movie. <laughs> it is. So do we need to go over the plot of this thing, or do most people know this thing? I, I think most people know the, the plot of It Conquered the World, but real high-level kind of plot synopsis, Zontar is this being from outer space, from Venus, who is communicating with Keith Ritchie, who is a scientist working with John Agar and company. Is Keith actually working in the lab? Actually, now that I said that, is he, he's part of the project, right? 
Well, I think Keith, I think he's had a falling out with the powers that oh, be there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Because of his theories. And, it, and I think they kind of suggest in the original film that he's kind of unemployed. Although he does have the best house. Yes, he does. Nice town. <laughs> but everybody respects him, but they think he's, he's kind of out there. So I don't believe he's on John Agar, Dr. Kurt Taylor's project, no. Yeah, no, he's no longer on staff. At the very beginning, though, while they're working to launch the laser satellite, Keith is warning Dr. Taylor one last time, please don't launch this. This is going to get the attention of other beings out there that don't want us getting too big for our britches. You know, there's a previous satellite that was launched or, or a different project that was launched and destroyed. And Keith blames it on Zontar and says, you know, that's, that's their way of telling us to stay put. Don't, don't do this. And Dr. Taylor's like, well, you know, science, we got to do it. Yep. Sorry, Keith, we respect you, but a little crazy. So no. Exactly. So they they launched the project, and this movie doesn't waste any time. Three oh. months later, they're all having dinner together. <laughs> Nothing yeah. happened in three months. Speaking of not losing any time, the movie begins with Keith warning Dr. Taylor about it. There's a confrontation right off the bat. This movie hits the ground running. Yeah, it does. It does. It does have a very good pace, especially to start with. Mm-hmm. So what did, what did you think of the satellite? <laughs> It's, it's, it's low-budget 1960s. Yeah. You know, it, it is what it I is. Mean, you always kind of look like a yo-yo with a dome on it. <laughs> but again, but you know, he does get some interesting planet backgrounds things, and he's mm-hmm. got kind of, well, okay, looks like black construction paper shining a light through it to simulate the stars. But it's okay. I can live with it. You do what you got to do. That's right. The suspension of disbelief and all that, right? Yep. Well, everything goes fine for about three months until Dr. Taylor and, and Keith and their wives are having dinner, and Dr. Taylor gets a phone call. The satellite's gone. And this is also the same dinner party where Keith is showing Dr. Taylor his communication device with Zontar, which yep. I think I like the machine, and it conquered the world a little bit better. It looked a little bit more impressive. Okay. Um, and in, in Conquered the World, Peter Graves gets off a really good line. He says, hey, that's a nice-looking set. Where does one buy the kit? Yeah. Back when they had all the Heath kit stuff and people were soldering together, you know, stereos and hi-fi stuff. So that was kind of cool. I'm sorry they lost that. But, but yeah, I agree with you. But it's it's good enough for Zontar to communicate with oh, Keith. Oh, yeah. And Keith is trying to show Dr. Taylor. And, and can you hear him? Can you hear him? No, he just hears the static, which, again, is straight out of Victory Conquered the World. Mm-hmm. It's, this movie pretty much follows the, the beats and the pacing of the, of the earlier films. So if you're familiar with The Conquer the World, you're going to be familiar with the story beats in this one. One thing I would liked about that, though, that conversation was, we said, don't you hear the other thing? And, boy, that sounds like a really crazy person, not the other thing, you know, <laughs> the, you know not just the static, the other thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Keith starts to hear it for a minute, or I'm sorry, Kurt starts to hear it for a minute, and oh, he shakes it off. That you kind of just sort of, again, parlays into how obsessed uh, uh, a little bit edgy Keith Ritchie is. Mm-hmm. Now, as an audience, we know better because there wouldn't be a movie if there wasn't something right. else going on. But, yeah, Dr. Taylor really sells the, well, may, no, you're nuts. This is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit within my realm of science and my realm of experience. And I'm not even going to go there. So, besides, they lost contact with the laser satellite. I got to go. Mm-hmm. Just like in the other film, they have lost contact with the other satellite. And because... Sontar's taking it under his own control. Do they call it a him in this one? There's a really good line in this, in which makes fun of the original. John Agar says, you've got a little buddy on Venus. Says, What's his name? Or is it just an it? Or maybe it's a she. That's right. Well, his name is untranslatable into really into any Earth language, but it sounds like something like Zontar. And then cue the spooky organ music from yes. it. And, you know, it kind of, I hate to say it, it, it with this in... The very common theme in fantasy literature is once you know the true name of something, mm-hmm. it loses power over you, you know, kind of. So when you label it Zontar, that takes, I got to admit, that's a great title for a monster movie. Well, it's Zontar. That mm-hmm. takes a little bit of its mystery away, but still, it still has its own dopey charm. Yeah, that's true. That scene where it's like when John Agar looks at him and kind of smirks, or maybe it's a she. That's right. That is quintessential John Agar smirking yep. right there. I love it. Yep, that's a great scene. Oh, well, it. it's just yeah, it's John Agar, man. Yeah. <laughs> I can get caught up in John Agarisms all day. So, yeah, I'm I'm on board. So Zontar's taking the satellite off of the grid, and he's going to hitch a ride. 
and wait for mm-hmm. it and then make sure that the satellite is now viewable by the Earth again. The Earth brings it down, brings Zontar unknowingly back to our planet, where Zontar can now enact its plans with Keith to basically take over. And Zontar's a very good pilot, too, because somehow he manages to steer that flying saucer right into a cave. Yeah. You know? You know, in the original, uh, uh, Bulis has to smash it into the side of a hill. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> of course, we never do see the spaceship again, but I don't know. That, that's true, that's true. Well, Zontar looked like he had better fingers than Bulis in my last, <laughs> so maybe Zontar could steer better. He had more manual dexterity, okay? That, that's okay. what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, and as, didn't have a mouth though. Hmm, yeah, I don't this think. is true. This is true. Yeah, yeah, it didn't look like it, did it? Uh, huh. So anyway, I'm sorry. No, no. I think we pretty much got the setup here. The rest of the movie is Zontar enacting its plan with the devices. Do they call them the same thing? They call them and it conquered the world. The little you know, I think this, and it depends on who you talk to. I, th- I think they're called injectopods, the creatures okay. that fly out of them. But other people have called them ejectopods. The ejectopod or the injectopods, again, we go back to Paul Blaisdell. His little creatures, which were equally horrible looking, look like little bat manta ray things that would mm-hmm. fly around. And there's one scene in which one is sitting on a branch and is like breathing and hissing, looking very venomous, which is really creepy. But yeah. these guys, you know, don't forget that, you know, the most important thing is they look, what, kind of like a bat, owl, lizard, a little bit like the the monster from the giant claw in the face, you know, and, uh, and their biggest job, the most important thing is to bite you in the back of the net to implant you with Zontar's bioelectric uh, essence. But sure. before that, they have to get your hat off. So they have to swing you around if you toss knock your general's hat off and things. That's great. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fun. And it's fun, though. I mean, it's kind of oh, adds yeah, a little bit sure. of the fun to these movies, a little bit of the charm to these things. Uh-huh. So. Now, Zontar has the ability to knock out power. And unless you're under Zontar's control, you don't have power. Your cars don't work. Your watches. He turns off the water somehow. I mean, there's just yep. no generation of power of any kind unless you are one of Zontar's thralls, I guess. is the best way to put it. So. Sure. When the general shows up and his watch is working, oh, well, maybe we need to worry about the general at this point. Yeah. You know, when you go to somebody's house and their lights are on, well, there's something going on here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do like that, and I like that they take so much of the technology away from people, which really makes the the level of, oh, no, we're in trouble, kind of go up even more. And I really enjoyed that in both versions of the film. And I think in Zontar, it does give us that awesome opportunity for John Agar to have to use a bike to get from point A to point B, which which is great. I mean, I know Mm -hmm. Peter Graves has to do a lot of manual transportation himself in the other one. That's fine. But (laughs) it's John Agar, man. Yep, yep. I'm not exactly sure where... uh Buchanan shot a lot of this, but there is, again, a little bit of that Manos feel because there's an awful lot of riding through fields and <laughs> empty barrens, lots of footage of landscapes and things, uh, you know, that, that kick in there sometimes. Did you say this was the first one that Buchanan had remade for them? I, I'm not sure. I would have to, I'd have to take a look and see. I can, while we're talking, I can take a look at that. Well, it's pretty darn close to one of the earlier ones, so uh, I wonder yeah. if they just weren't padding it too much, cause, or they were padding it too much without a lot of extra dialogue or scenes. And because, again, yeah, yeah, exactly like you said, I think, yeah. Oh, you know what? The Eye Creatures was his first remake, 1965. Okay, okay. And Zontar was 1966. Okay. So pretty early in their remaking cycle there. So, you know, it's not like they could add a lot to the original script. And I don't know, the original script is pretty tight, I felt like, for a yeah. world. And it, and it seemed to fit within his time frame just fine. This one had to be longer because it was being sold to television. So they had to stretch out those scenes. I don't know. I like it, though. I mean, again, it's part of the charm. It's part of the charm. It's part of the attraction. And ultimately, it comes down to just a handful of people who are not underneath Zontar's thrall, John Agar being one of them, Keith's wife, uh, Martha being one of them, and a group of military that show up, again, kind of out of the blue like they did in Conquered the World. They... (laughs) The, the yeah, military shows up. Kind of goofballs, most of them. So. Yeah, in both versions. 
it's very strange because in the original you had like I think Dick Miller was one of them and, and oh of course it was Roger Corman so yeah yeah and and Ron, Jonathan Hayes and mm-hmm. Jonathan Hayes's character is kind of this Latino guy and then for some reason in this one the soldier becomes kind of Bronxish or Brooklynish it does you know, have for that feel comic like, relief and stuff yeah. the two guards when they go to the installation you know when the power outage kicks in there are guards and they're looking at a little peep show viewer of a girl in a bathing suit. Yeah. Man, you don't see much of that anymore with, you know, internet access, but that's, that's they're looking at that and they're asking questions like, I wonder what, what the effect this power outage has on my wife's big mouth. <laughs> Very insensitive, I must admit, but their delivery of it is pretty good. What he says is, says the general showed up. He says, yeah, general's jeep broke down. He had to walk. Strange yeah. to see a general walk. He hardly knows how. Oh, but it's good. I love the dialogue yeah. in that. I mean, yeah. it gives you, whether it was intentional or not, some nice comedy moments, some nice comic mm-hmm. moments. And the final confrontation in Zontar is pretty similar to the original film. You know, the wife figures out where the cave is and goes in. And this is where I was saying earlier, she has this habit of going in and making these declarations and then walking out of a scene. Mm-hmm. While she's wandering around the cave, she announces to anybody who happens to be there, I'm here to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't... Hmm. Well, yeah, she, you know, one thing that impressed me, Derek, watching this for the first time is I didn't really pick up on this quite as much before, but just how much of a triangle there is between her and Zantar and her husband. You know, she's fighting for her husband's love. Just that simple thing in a lot of ways. And, you know, because he's deceived. And another thing other people have pointed out, the women in, in this film, it may be a more primal thing, but the women are always getting it right. His wife is right on the money. He's kind of deluded. Kurt's wife, I have a premonition about this. You know, In a way, it kind of is a statement towards feminism, I think, if you like. You get a little bit of that in this one. I think it's pretty clear, and it conquered the world, especially with Beverly Garland's character. Uh-huh. You get it really loud and clear there. But you do get that a little bit here, too. I just wish... I just wish the performers were a little bit more up to snuff or, or yeah. something, you know, we talked about the sound being a little odd. There's just something. It sounds like they did a lot of ADR with their dialogue and it just mm-hmm. doesn't seem natural. But of course, some of that is, well, especially the scientists in the laboratory, mm-hmm. after they've been, they get possessed by Zontar's injectopods, they talk very haltingly and, you know, very zombie-ish and they reveal True. plans that they're, the general is going to take a bomb to Washington to blow up the president, all delivered very monotone and no emotion. One of the scientists kills the female assistant, strangles her, mm-hmm. because you know, there wasn't enough to inject the pods to go around. They couldn't get her. This will only take a second. It's all very, you know, matter of fact, creepier that way. Yeah. Sort of white hand on his jacket. So, I, yeah, it's hard to say what... In that case, what's boring and what's, well, I'm playing the role of a mind-controlled individual thrall of a creature from, you know, another planet. True. True. I do like this, though. I do like Zontar quite a bit. And do we want to talk about how it ultimately ends? Do you want to do the honors here? Or do we want to not spoil it? I mean, I think people have already seen it, but... I think people have already seen it, so it's fine with me if you want to talk about that. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. Well, like you said, Kurt and... Keith, they're having a discussion, and and Keith is supposed to kill Kurt because Kurt has destroyed his injectopod meant for him uh, after Zontar infected his wife, and so uh, Kurt shot her because she was his his enemy. Keith's wife, Martha, takes off with a steal of the gun that she was going to use, that that her husband was going to use to kill Kurt, drives off to the Hot Springs Cave where Zontar has made his location because it seems similar to his Venus environment. So she drives over there. Her car works because, you know, she's on the A-list of (laughs) Zontar selected. And so she gets out there and, yeah, like you said, she wanders into the cave and is looking for him and announces here. There's nothing like looking for your enemy saying, I'm here to kill you. Yeah. They're in this this cavern, and I must say, it's a little bit more impressive cavern than the Bronson Cavern. I agree. Although it it looks like as you're going into it, it looks like it's a culvert and coming out of it, like the the ants from them. Yeah, I thought that was odd. Yeah, that's like well, you actually saw this in the cave, but here for the exterior locations, you know, we did this here. So she goes in, encounters Zantar, and he does have some nice scenes in which he reveals, and you know, she he reveals he's unfolding his bat wings and stuff, and she's looking for him, and she gets a little lost, and she stumbles into him, 
And she says some choice dialogue like, Zontar, you're hideous, slimy. You think you're going to control the world? I hate you for what you've done to my husband and everything. He says, I'll see you in hell first. Not, yes, not right. quite as good as Beverly Garland's delivery, but okay. And she shoots Zontar several times, has no effect. And so Zontar, very vampire-like, like he said, enfolds her in his huge black wings and kills her. And because the set is on, Keith and Kurt hear her death. So that finally snaps Keith out of it, and he realizes what's going on. So he dispatches John Agar to the military base, and he gets over there and shoots down all of the scientists and generals who are planning to go to the White House and blow up the president and cause anarchy, while Keith drives off to the cave to catch up with Zontar, and he runs into Bill Thurman, who is probably the greatest of the character actors in uh, Larry Buchanan's repertoire as the sheriff. Oh, yeah. And to destroy Zontar, the old bullets won't work. You have to use a, I think it's a communications device that he uses with his radio, which is a plutonium ruby crystal laser. And he pulls it out, and it looks a little bit like kind of a, a, a tricked out caulk gun or <laughs> a Roman candle or something. But he takes that out, and when the sheriff tries to shoot him, who is also one of Zontar's zombies, he fires this thing at him, and it, it is kind of a nice effect of this yellow pattern, yellow with all sorts of weird red and green spots, and everything goes negative for a few seconds. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was kind of cool, actually, for what they were doing. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that very much. Plus, also, I don't think... I've since read in these books that Buchanan was not much for blood, whereas in the original one, you had... People getting you know blow torches in the face and stuff. And That's true. So yeah. Been a way around that a little bit. The soldiers finally start going in. Zontar does have an altercation with one of them. He just sort of grabs his head and and doesn't squish it, but grabs it hard enough to kill the soldier, I guess. <laughs> so they run out, and so Keith finally catches up with his duplicitous master, and says something like, "I made you welcome to this earth." You're here to destroy it and not to save it. I won't let you. Zantar comes and grabs him, and he raises the laser gun and, I guess, incinerates both of them. Mm-hmm. I kind of miss one thing from the original is uh, Lee Van Cleef says, says, you want to turn this world into a charnel house, which is kind of a cool thing, but I don't think many people know what a charnel house is anymore. Right, and it's a great line for Lee Van Cleef to say. Yeah, he really gets it off. He yells yeah. it at Zontar. Yeah. In the original, right before sticking a blowtorch in Zontar's eyes. Or, I'm sorry, Eula's eyes. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, for that time period, too, that's pretty gruesome. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, I think they use, like, chocolate syrup or something coming sure. out, and there are all sorts of stories about... The big thing is Jonathan Hayes got too clever with his bayonet and stuck it into the monster's face and almost actually hit... Paul Blaisdell while he was inside the monster costume. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I think. And, of course, here's the big thing that, of course, Corman insisted on bringing the monster out of the cave so you could see it in all its glory and all of its defects. kind of was necessary to put more action in at the end of the film. But Valtar's a little smart. He stays at the cave. He doesn't. <laughs> nah. I'm sticking around here so you can't see the wires or the, <laughs> or the seam in the back of my suit. Right. But at the very end, just about everybody is dead, yeah. except for John Agar, Kurt, and one of the soldiers. The soldier comes up to him and says, you wouldn't want to go in there. They're all messed up. You know, he says, the thing talked like he knew the thing. He says, he did. And they show little clips of the destruction and devastation and the dead bodies that have resulted from all this. And he says that, you know, Keith wanted the best for our world, but, you know, he sought outside help. And what he doesn't understand is help has to come from within, from the human heart, not from outside. You know, man is the greatest creature in the universe. And uh, it's up to, I guess, us to fulfill our own potential, not seek it from some other benevolent or not so benevolent master. Roll credits. Yeah, the roll credits end scene. (laughs) It's an enjoyable film. I'm glad I had a chance to go, well, like I needed an opportunity to go back and watch some of these movies, but uh, it was fun to go back and watch it knowing that I was going to talk about it with you on the show because it's something that I hadn't seen in a long time. Mm -hmm. And I did recently see A Conquer the World when we talked about that with Tracy Morris back in February during Women in Horror Month. 
So it was nice to kind of go back to this and see it after having watched A Conquer the World not too long ago and see the, the obvious comparisons as well as some of the obvious differences. I like Peter Graves, but I love John Agar. And yeah. I really think he is the big selling point. If you're a John Agar fan, you got to see this movie. Yeah, he nails it in this. You know, I mean, in Buchanan's Curse of the Swamp Creature, he doesn't really have a whole lot to do. He just sort of sits around and is a prospector and stuff and listens to the uh, dialogue, and he rescues somebody from a, a, a sealed room and stuff. Mm-hmm. But here, he's, like I said, he's uh, James Bond. He's he's doing all you know, He's <laughs> fighting oppression and getting his cardio workout in. He's doing great. That's right, man. He's saving the world. Mm-hmm. You know, at least saving us from communism. That's what, uh, yes. <laughs> or whatever, yeah. yeah. Or, or communism from Venus, I suppose. <laughs> I guess. Although, you know, it's interesting because at one point they're talking, and he says, what, Kurt, what happened to your this special project and stuff, you know, that you were working on? It was a great idea. He says, well, you know, government red tape. And, and so this potentially very beneficial space program got scuttled. So, you know, and I know with the with the way that the Republicans and Democrats go after each other and the deadlock we're in, maybe we could use a little bit of Zontar, just a little to get stuff done. <laughs> Just a little. You know, you, know you, you started saying that. You said Republicans and Democrats. I'm like, oh, we're about to get political. I'm going to no, turn no, off no, so no, many no. listeners. No, no throw in a little Zontar. No, no. Okay, I'm back on board. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, because, you know, Zontar could control power selectively at the source. Oh, there you go. There Just you a go. little. Just yeah. a little. <laughs> yeah, I do like the comments you made about controlling the water because it's also good to know that, that uh, Keith Ritchie has the only working hose in town. Yeah, that's I'm true. Sure that's <laughs> wow. Very important. Very important. <laughs> now, this was a good film. It's a fun film. Is it readily available on DVD right now? I mean, that's how I have it, but I'm assuming it's easy to get your hands on it. Well, I, I think so. You know, I mean, like you said, Retro Media put it out in a double feature uh, several years ago with the Eye Creatures. I believe you can just stream Zontar, or I think he's free. I think you can go to Internet Archive. I think you can watch it there. Is it in the public domain? And I think. Isn't it in some of the Mill Creek collections? I don't know. I'm. Uh, I didn't realize that if it is public domain, that blows my mind. I can't say for certain, but I think it might oh. be in some of the Mill Creek collections. I think you can also see several of the other AIP stuff. I honestly, now I'm at the point where, you know, now that we've been talking about it, I'd like to see some of the other Buchanan films, like Naughty Dallas. It is often said that some of the prettiest girls come from Dallas. What isn't said is that those girls come from little Texas town that you've never heard of. This is the story of one such girl who had a burning desire to have her name up in lights. So to you, the movie patrons, we bring this story. The story of Tony Shannon, one of many beautiful Texas girls with stars in her eyes. Travel with Tony on her road to stardom. A little shy, a little timid, but full of determination. Visit with Tony at the famous Script University, where a girl learns what really pleases a man. Share Tony's heartaches and setbacks. Yes, this is a moviegoer's must. See on the screen the famous Jada from the Carousel Club in the heart of Dallas. I wish I could drink like a lady, two or three at the most. With two, I'm under the table, but with three, I'm under the host. <laughs> oh, that's poetry! <laughs> well, that was just wonderful, Mrs. Goose. Ah, oh, come on, call me mother. <laughs> All right, you mother! <laughs> Don't miss Naughty Dallas coming to this theater soon. The last movie he, he made was something called something like The Copper Scroll of Mary Magdalene in which he was returning to his religious roots. So I'd love to see some of these things. I, I don't know if they're accessible or not, but uh, it would be great to, to have a chance to take a peek at those. Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm looking on Amazon right now while we're talking, and somebody is selling for about 8 $9 a copy of Zontar on DVD, and they're saying it's digitally remastered. Now, I don't know what that means. I've never heard of this company before. But okay, yeah. And I, I don't think you can expect to find Blu-ray editions. Oh, of no. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if it's worth it to tell the truth. But. You know, I love having Blu-rays of a lot of these classic monster movies, but doing that, seeing them remastered and put out on Blu-ray, 
just makes the wires and all that a lot more visible. Yeah. And it's, you know, you see the zipper in the back of the suit so much more clearly, and it, it kind of robs the the suspension a little bit. Sure. <laughs> but sure, I agree. you know what? If, if if somebody wanted to put out a copy of Zontar with, like, commentary tracks and all this other stuff, yes, I'm on board. Yes, there you go. I'm on board. You... Sign me up. <laughs> 100%. It's interesting because looking through this fanzine, as I mentioned, I think all in all, I think that uh, Larry Buchanan had a good time and was a, a good sport about these movies that sure. he made because he became aware of some of this bad film interest. Like, I'd seen these films as a kid, but I never was able to read anything about them until references, you know, the classic reference books that we had were mostly, you know, the Universals, mm-hmm. the AIPs, but what about these made-for-TV little things? There weren't a lot of references to them. But when, for instance, you had Michael Weldon's Psychotronic uh, Encyclopedia come out, sure. that had stuff about it. And when you had the huge fanzine explosion in the 70s where you had Fact Sheet 5 and things like that, people became aware of this. And there were a lot of little magazines devoted, you know, the more gore stuff, Sleazoid Express. But you also had these little magazines that dealt with what they called bad film at the time. And apparently Buchanan became aware of this and wrote the people who put out this Zontar, the magazine from Venus, and said, could you send me a couple issues Cause, so oh, I wow. could see it? And they, they said, you know, you're the master. We, you know, we obey. So he wrote them back, and I won't read his whole letter, but talks about plans for them making, like, musical versions of, you know, potentially Mars needs women. Oh, and, wow. you know, he was going to make a movie called It Came From Hunger, where film students force him to sit down, like in Clockwork Orange, and view the worst scenes from his movies. <laughs> Oh, that sounds great. This is kind of nice. This is what he says at the end. He says, I am not offended by your articles. On the contrary, I love them. Was it not Oscar Wilde who said, there is only one thing worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. And they asked me, then, is Zontar dead? I replied, no. They said, but you ran him through with your sword and zapped him with a laser. I said, I tell you, he is not dead. But where is he? And I whispered, like Jesus. He has been let loose upon the world. So I don't know quite what to make of that, but it but sounds kind of impressive. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> Alan, this has been fun. This has been a blast, man. It's been, I should have had you on the show much sooner than this. No problem. No problem. Enjoy talking to you. Yeah, we really Always should. fun to talk about this stuff. I hope you can use some of this. Oh, it's it's definitely uh, – we've got a good couple of quality episodes in here, man. Sounds great. No, sounds this is great. good. We'll have you back on the show uh, down the line, you know, uh, health willing. Talk about some more monster movie stuff. Don't suppose you're traveling anytime soon, so no conventions coming up for you anytime soon? I don't think so. I, I Not not right at the moment. And you actually do in the chemo, you're really not supposed to fly. That's what I thought. But I just try to make it out to, you know, something like a, a cold city. I live in St. Louis, so cold cities for me would be like Indianapolis and uh, Chicago and stuff like that. So I might make it out to some of those. Well, I am going and to I hope to get up to Portland again someday. Catch one of the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festivals or something like that. I was going to say, yeah, the Cthulhu Con is coming up here in a couple of weeks. Uh-huh. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll think some good thoughts for you while I'm there. How about that? I appreciate it. Okay. I appreciate it. <laughs> Alan, thanks a lot. All right, Derek. Take care. Alan Trump was a great guest to have on Monster Kid Radio. Very accommodating schedule-wise. Only took a couple of days to set up the recording session, and Alan went out of his way to make this happen. Thank you, Alan, for doing the research on Larry Buchanan and talking about the movie and sharing your experiences with Buchanan's films. It was a really good chat for me, and I think the listeners dug it as well. Alan, health willing, we're going to have you back on the show in the future to talk about a few other things. At one point, we talked about doing a movie from the 70s. We might get to that, but yeah, we definitely need to have you back on at some point. Thank you, my friend, and... Continue to heal up. The lonely, helpless earth. The 21st century. The world of the future. And lurking beyond the cold, strange immensity of conquered space. Growing and spreading beyond the warped imagination of the greatest human intellect. Exploding in unspeakable horror... The green slime. The civilized world at war with alien form, whose slimy touch means instant, horrible death. Invaders from beyond the stars. The green slime.
Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacob. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. Searches for a last chance to save the human race from the desperate hunger of the green slime. A battle in space against faceless beings. A cosmic nightmare that sends you into the incredible, the short world of... The next Monster Kid Radio crash is happening this weekend. It's happening in Portland, Oregon, at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, or OMSI for short. They are running a sci-fi film fest right now. And while they're showing some somewhat modern science fiction films within the past 10 years or so, they're also showing some classics, like 1968's Planet of the Apes. It's a Charlton Heston discovers a world turned upside down, where humans run wild in the jungles and the superior beings are apes. Planet of the Apes, a fascinating civilization where apes build the cities and control the laws. Charlton Heston, Roddy McDowell, Kim Hunter, and Morris Evans star in Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams. Oh, monster kids, I can't wait to see this movie. As I said in the last episode, I've never seen it. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that I, I, I just never got around to it. But I know how important the movie is. I am stoked to see this thing at the OMSI movie theater. It's a four-story tall screen. I mean, come on. So this is going to be a lot of fun. You can check them out over at OMSI, that's O-M-S-I, dot E-D-U. And it's right there, front and center, the Sci-Fi Film Festival. Or if you're a user of Facebook, look up Monster Kid Radio Crash's Planet of the Apes. So what happens at a crash? Well, I bring my recorder along, and I try to record about the movie beforehand, and maybe even afterwards with any other Monster Kid Radio crashers. If you are in the Portland area and you are going to go, look me up. I'd love to meet you. If you're interested, I'd love to put you on the show. I'm hard to miss. I'm the big guy wearing the Monster Kid radio shirt, and I'm sure I'm going to have a pretty big grin on my face because I can't wait to see Planet of the Apes. Tickets are only $7, and uh, I'd recommend buying your tickets early just because I think this is going to be a big deal. In fact, as soon as I get done recording this episode, I'm going to go online and buy my tickets now. That brings us to the end of episode 193 of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for spending some time with us, with me, Alan, and Larry Buchanan, and John Agar. Okay, I couldn't resist. John Agar rules from the Dead Elvi. Look it up on YouTube. Larry Underwood, Dr. Gangrene did an awesome music video set to that song over on YouTube. Yeah, go look that up or check the show notes and you'll find a link in there over at monsterkidradio.net. It's going to give you all the information that you need to know about Monster Kid Radio, about this episode and everything else going on between episodes. Like you're going to find links to every song that's appeared here on the show in the past. It's sorted by band. You can see the episode number, the album, the song, and a place to go to their website, maybe even buy their album and show them a little Monster Kid love. We also have links to our Live 365 internet radio station. I'm going to be adding some new music, a few new tracks to that, probably this upcoming weekend after I get back from Planet of the Apes. So you might want to check that out. And if you want to know what those new tracks are, subscribe to the Monster Rally Checkpoint monthly e-newsletter. Over on the right at monsterkidradio.net, there's a place for you to put in your email address. You just hit subscribe, and this is going to subscribe you to the once a month, I swear this is the only thing this is going to be used for, email newsletter that we're going to be putting out here. Keeping people up to date with the latest happenings at Monster Kid Radio and Monster Rally Media. There's going to be some behind-the-scenes stuff going on, some plans about upcoming episodes. I'm going to talk about episode 200, which is coming up in the April release, which will be coming out later this month. 
Monster Rally Checkpoint will be released at the end of the month, unless you're a Patreon subscriber at a certain level, then you get it two weeks early. So you have some time to subscribe to Monster Rally Checkpoint. You can also subscribe through our Facebook page, facebook.com slash monsterkidradio, or if you're a patron of any level, through patreon.com, patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. We will sign you up for the newsletter that way as well. Of course, there's links to our Patreon page over at our monsterkidradio.net website. We have hit our second milestone because you boys and girls are awesome. Thank you so much for your continued patronage of Monster Kid Radio. Now that we've hit the second milestone, we're going to start doing some extra things here at the show. For example, this $50 milestone that we just hit means that we're going to be doing up another classic monster movie poster in the style of, well, look at the episode image of this episode, for example. I will take a classic movie monster poster, take out the title, and put Monster Kid Radio in there instead. I'm going to do one specifically for this milestone every month that we are at this milestone level, and I'm going to put it out as a wallpaper for your computer, your tablet, your phone, whatever. So that'll be coming, and that'll be available at the beginning of May. I'll be doing it at the beginning of the following month, every month we hit that milestone. So anyway, stay tuned. Our contact information is at monsterkidradio.net as well. We have an email address of monsterkidradio at gmail.com and a voicemail line at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you have any thoughts about anything you've heard here on the podcast, either in this episode or the previous 193, we'll go ahead and send it in and we'll talk about it on a future episode. Well, speaking of recording, I am bringing my recorder to the next Monster Kid Radio crash this weekend, so... Chances are, I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened when we went to the Planet of the Apes showing at OMSI on Saturday at 3.45 p.m. here in Portland. If I don't go that route, well, I've got some other content that I've already got recorded and I'm sitting on, and I can put that together as well. Bottom line is that you're just going to have to come back next week for episodes number 195 and 196 to find out what's next on Monster Kid Radio. Oh, and one more thing. The official schedule for this year's CthulhuCon happening April 25th and 26th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Portland, Oregon. Find out more about that over at CthulhuCon.com. The schedule has been announced and two panels that I'm involved in made the cut. So on Saturday, April 26th, if you're in the area and you attend the con, I would love to see you. On the panel, Lost Worlds of Lovecraft, where we're going to look at stories like The Call of Cthulhu, at the Mountains of Madness, and The Shadow Out of Time, and explore the connections between these stories and some of the adventure epics of the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. When I applied to be on the panel, it was called Lovecraft versus King Kong. So that's where my head's at on that one. I'm a panelist on that one. I'm the moderator on the panel, Lovecraft Gets Hammered. This is on Sunday from 2 to 3 p.m. I'm moderating this panel about the Lovecraftian influences on various Hammer films. Really excited for this one. Planning on recording at least the Lovecraft Gets Hammered panel. We'll be sharing that on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio and probably 1951 Down Place as well. Now, these aren't the only panels there. There are a ton of excellent opportunities to get your Lovecraft on at the CthulhuCon, April 25th and 26th. Again, CthulhuCon.com is where you're going to find everything you need to know about that show or follow the link in the show notes over at MonsterKidRadio.net. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Sinister People's Secrets. That belongs to the Mullet Monster Mafia. It's on their album Power Surf Orchestra. You can find them over at the mulletmonstermafia.bandcamp.com or you can buy the album or look them up on Facebook. Either way, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Thanks again for listening. Talk to everybody next week. (laughs) 